Okay, so our last or our final talk for the afternoon um, is Adrian Howards, who will be joining us momentarily. Um, Adrian's going to be talking uh, with us um, about a technique called uh, pace layer mapping. Um, and I can't remember. Hello, Adrian. Now, is this really early morning Hello. or is this really late at night for you? Remind me. This is, this is really early in the morning for me, so... Okay. I blame any confusion on on that and the fact the coffee's not kicked in yet. <laughs> I was going to say to quote to quote one of your more famous tweets, coffee. <laughs> Over to you, Adrian. Right. Um, hello, everyone. Um, thank you for putting up with me at the the end of the day and the oh my goodness, it's it's too early o'clock here. Um, I spend my time working with companies who are, are having problems where the work of kind of user research, product management and delivery overlap. And one of the pain points I often encounter is where teams fail to integrate user research work effectively with the ongoing product work. Um, helping do that um, better eventually led to the practice that is called pace layer mapping. Um, and unfortunately, yes, it's it's yet another canvas and research and product work is full of canvases and you're probably familiar with a bunch already. Um, so you know what to expect. Um, I'll neatly explain the structure of the canvas. I will fill in some of the details from a nice simple example. Um, we'll sprinkle it with a bunch of post-it notes and show how it solves a simple problem for you. Uh, and we're done. And I'm not going to do that. Um, because I'm much more interested in telling you um, the long, messy journey that eventually led to that pace layer mapping canvas practice. It didn't spring fully formed um, from the forehead of Zeus. Um, like the, the work that you do, we started looking at one problem, saw some things that we could do, things that we could improve. Um, we experienced new problems, tweaked stuff, ran experiments, learned from those experiences and eventually evolved this practice over time to help solve new problems, hopefully. And, and that's the journey we're going to go on today. Um, we started with an alignment problem that we solved with a practice called scale of truthiness. Um, after that alignment problem was solved, the, the practice evolved a little bit into something we started calling lean persona, which then evolved into incremental persona, which then evolved into iterative persona, which then added a new thing on top of that, we started calling flare, um, which eventually broadened out into pace layer mapping. And all of those things were, were useful at different times for different reasons. They solved some problems, raised some new ones. And for those who want to switch off now, that's the lesson I want you to take away today, that the the artifacts and practices that we, we use for user research should, should be useful. And, and when they're not, please change them uh, until they actually are. Um, so let's return to the beginning, the scale of truthiness. And this came about when I was working with a startup that was still figuring out problem solution fit. They'd done some kind of early customer development work that was reasonable. They'd, they'd built some early prototypes, hired a bunch of people, but they were beginning to have problems identifying their target customers. Um, the details of what they were building um, don't really matter. Um, so, and also there's a scary NDA. Um, so let's just say that they were making Twitter for cats. Um, 
they hired me to to help them get some clarity on their product strategy and vision. And after talking to a bunch of people at the organization, it rapidly became clear that there was a massive lack of alignment on, on who their actual customers were and what problems they were having. Um, the product managers were kind of building for something like this. The developers thought they were building for something like this. Um, the designers thought they were building for something like this. And the investors' model of the customer was so far off track from everybody else's when we actually talked to them. Um, it was like a miracle that had any kind of coherent conversation at all. Um, unsurprisingly, this lack of alignment on who we were building for and whose problems we were trying to solve led to a lot of conflict within the organization on what direction the product should go in. And I'm sure the process of herding different stakeholders with different needs is, is familiar to you. It's a, it's a problem we all hit. Um, and so I did what I suspect many of you would have done in the same situation. Um, we This was a pre-COVID, and, and we stuffed them all into the same room with a lot of paper, sharpies, and post-it notes. Um, we even managed to get a few different end users of the existing product in that room as well. Um, and we started to surface all the different models and different ideas about a customer. We split folk into groups and got them to articulate the product's customers with a few different methods just so we could get lots of different perspectives. Um, we got them to use four by fours to describe their typical customers, um, something I learned from the writing of the excellent Janice Fraser. Um, we got them to build empathy maps to describe those customer experiences, something I learned from Dave Gray's work. Uh, we got people to identify dimensions that could help classify different kinds of customers along, along a continuum sort of thing, um, something I got from Cindy Alvarez's excellent Lean Customer Development book. And once folk were fairly happy and settled with what they'd produced, we pulled all the information off those sheets and threw all the evidence and the assumptions and the wild-ass guesses onto post-it notes, and we stuck them up on the wall. And at this point, obviously, we hadn't got any kind of alignment. We had, in fact, a lot of disagreement as people walked the wall and saw how different people saw things, um, which is where the scale of truthiness comes in. And it's really simple. You just draw a line right across the length of the wall, and at one end of the scale um, are things that we basically have made up, guesses, and at the other end, there are things that we're really confident of, things that we have a lot of evidence for. And then we got folk to justify where their things sat on the scale, which led to lots of interesting conversations about what counts as evidence, um, the different experiences people had with customers and so on. Um, ideas that were mutually contradictory obviously couldn't both be true, um, which led to much more productive conversations about how we could figure out what the real state of the world is. Um, we started annotating that board with um, research activities and experiments to help figure things out. We did little mini interviews with the customers who were in the room and um, got their views on things and, and stuff like that. And when things had finally settled down, 
um, it became clear that we needed to move the scale further out because nearly everything that we um, had uh, discovered needed more research and experimentation to validate well. And um, to be honest, as the facilitator for this, that extra step also helped me make sure that a few of the uh, facts that the team seemed 100% certain of um, actually got checked with some decent research. And while we weren't totally aligned on our customer, there was still a lot of disagreement. Um, we could begin to see that some options were much more likely than others were. And we had some solid next steps for research and experimentation to clarify those areas of uncertainty. Um, now, I'm sure some folk will be saying at this point that these people should have done some better um, user research up front, uh, a bit of more ethnographic work, some good old-fashioned interviewing, built out some proper persona and customer journeys. And that might well have helped, um, like this persona example from Todd Warfall, because persona can be a really useful and powerful way to quickly communicate the results of user research. Um, they can also be terribly misused and lead teams to make dumb mistakes. I've, I've certainly experienced both scenarios um, in my career, and I'm definitely not going to get into the whole persona good versus persona evil argument. You can have that shouting match on Twitter if, if you like. Um, but I do love this quote from Jared Spall. Um, personas are to persona descriptions as vacations are to souvenir picture albums. They're a great reminder um, but they don't actually replace the experience. Uh, a picture album isn't the same as going on holiday. A persona description isn't the same as experiencing the user research process in all its joyful depth and fun. And in fact, the company did do some fairly decent early research work. Um, it was just it got invalidated by later changes and pivots to the underlying business model and never got redone, as it were. Uh, and later discoveries made during delivery never got fed back to tweak the bits that the, the, the original research had got wrong. So at the end of that scale of truthiness process, um, we didn't have a persona description. It was more like a snapshot of a bunch of research questions around the company's customers. It was something that with some more work might get distilled down into a decent persona description. But instead of that, I saw something more interesting happen. The artifact was left on the wall and people started referring it during product and development work when questions about customers came up. It stopped being the output of a one-off alignment activity, which was the way I'd always used it in the past. And it started being a tool that people were evolving over time. Researchers and product people used it as a tool to help them see what things needed more validation. Um, developers and designers used it to find things that people were more confident about, um, that, that they could make implementation decisions without kind of being going off and checking first. And rather than a continuum, folk added a little bit of structure and created broad categories and groupings for the research at the wall. Um, guesses were things that might, we might have heard from one customer or just a random idea someone on the team thought might be relevant. And then people started formalizing rules for when and how things move between the categories. For example, a guess could move to the weak category when we'd heard it, um, the problem articulated by five customers in some way. And something might move from weak to strong 
if we could deliver some kind of MVP or experiment to validate the customer, um, that customer need. And something might move from strong to true if we actually shipped a feature based on, on that experiment and we saw real customers use it to solve the, the problem that we had identified at the, at the start. We also started seeing movement back the other way. So if we shipped a feature and nobody used it, then there was something up with that original decision and maybe we'd miss something when, when we did that extra experimental step. So it moved back a little bit. Um, if we had a piece of evidence and it wasn't actually used to make any product decisions, then it wasn't kind of relevant to the work that was being done. And again, it might be pushed back a step. It helped people start build a, a playbook of activity research activities and delivery activities um, that worked with the user research and make it, made sure that it was relevant to the product work in progress. And because we had the shared resource that product people, user research people and developers could all come around together, uh, we started having much more productive conversations about priorities and research versus build decisions. Um, things over the left needed fairly obviously needed more research before we could make sensible product decisions with them. Um, things in the middle we had some weak evidence for maybe it's time to do some kind of small scale cheap bets on the kind of product direction that will come out of those insights you know experiments mvps and once we've got stuff over to to true um we had some fairly solid evidence that those things were used and useful and applied to our customers so we could start making larger investments, bigger bets, longer term work about the things that appeared there. Um, developers and designers could look to that space and go, yeah, I can make decisions based on that with relative confidence. And all this was useful enough that we wanted to start talking about this a bunch of practices together, communicating it to other teams. and helping them get some of the same advantages. And we started calling it Lean Persona. That was a huge mistake. Um, terrible, terrible label. Um, terrible, terrible label, um, because if you Google Lean Persona, you see a four by four and another 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 four by four. And it seems to become at some point over the last few years, the generic label for those kinds of artifact. So when people talked about um, Lean Persona and hadn't had the experience on that team with the scale of truthiness and all that work beforehand. They really got the wrong idea in their head uh, and they, they started doing different things unless people who'd had that experience were working with them all the time. So we changed the name. Since we started building up Persona, the Persona, Persona, scare quotes, over time, we thought incremental Persona might be a better label. So we changed the name again. Um, since we were building up the persona over time, we thought that might work more effectively. So we took that label out to do a different teams to see what they thought of it and what they expected that practice to be. And again, it was a lousy label. Uh, for some folk, incremental persona was communicating the idea that we were delivering bits of the completed persona one after another, rather than refining over time. So kind of building a jigsaw um, rather than refining a sketch. Um, this illustration from Jeff Patton's excellent user story mapping book um, kind of demonstrates that nicely. You know, um, incremental was taken as delivery in chunks. It had a start and a finish. Um, it's the wrong expectations with some lessons we found. On the other hand, iteration 
being more of a process. We're refining something over time, gradually making that sketch and low fidelity insights into higher fidelity insights that we're more confident about. So we tried that as a label. Um, and this one actually seemed to stick and be useful. People were curious when we talked about it. They, they didn't come back with an, a model about development that was a long way from the way that we wanted them to think about it. Um, and so a couple more teams started playing with this. And as we looked at that, we saw some other interesting behaviours. Um, remember those backward pushing rules we talked about? when the insights weren't applied and then dropped back to the less confident categories. We eventually saw some aspects of stuff that traditionally was, were terrible with persona, things, you know, demographics, gender, age, disappearing off the board because nobody was making product decisions with them. Um, and so mo they moved to the less relevant categories, which is lovely because those kind of things generally drive bad assumptions. There's a, there's a lovely article by Andy Young that I thoroughly re recommend you read if, if people haven't read it already. Um, but despite those problems, people seem really attached to those photos that we had used and those little bits of basic demographic information and kept bringing them back up again, um, even if they did eventually disappear off the board, especially if they hadn't been present for the work that pushed it off the board, the stuff that said we never actually used this information. So they brought it back uh, and tried to add it in again, even if that information didn't end up being useful for driving the product direction. So we just put it in a corner. We acknowledged that those things existed, but divorced them from the kind of decision-driving process that was happening in, in, in the stuff further up the wall. Um, so they can point at them and talk about them, but also demonstrate the fact that while these might be kind of true, they, they weren't useful to help us drive our product direction. Um, folks start, started calling this flare, which is a joke from the office space film, extraneous stuff that was supposed to reflect important things about the person, but actually didn't. So now we've added flare. What next? After using this model for a few different clients, we found some, some interesting issues around stability and focus. People sometimes got distracted by the kind of the new shiny stuff, the new insights, the new stuff that came in and failed to keep an eye on the bigger, longer terms work. Our initial attempt at fixing this was to do a, a periodic realignment exercise. We'd take a step back every few weeks and look at all our iterative persona models. Sometimes we edit, ended up throwing some of them away because we discovered the entire model really wasn't that relevant anymore to the work that was happening. Sometimes we discovered that there was a, a new model. There was, there was a bunch of new research and new, new information that had come in from the world uh, about a different kind of customer that we weren't looking at at this point. And we need to kick off a whole new artifact that didn't fit any of our existing models. Sometimes we had two different models and we merged them together. Um, we saw that an observation that we thought would be like a significant difference between two groups of customers turned out to just not be important and we could just treat them as the same. And, and sometimes the opposite. Sometimes we, we found there was a significant new behavior that we didn't really understand before and we actually had two groups with two different ways of uh, attacking or dealing with their issues and it's better to model them separately. This helped. Um, but after we started doing this, this periodic reassessment exercise, 
um, we started noticing um, something else that was quite interesting. We, we noticed that um, different things fairly obviously changed at different paces. Some stuff changed rapidly and some stuff changed much less frequently. For example, a new iOS release came out with a new notifications and widget features, and suddenly a chunk of our customers um, were asking customer support about, you know, why don't we have a widget for the app to show the thing? Because I really want to see the thing with the widget. Um, it's it's a new feature and uh, a new request from customers, uh, a new a need that just wasn't there like six months ago, and people wanted to pay attention to now and, and do things about it now. Um, other research insights change much less often. They're like the overall need for live notifications that hang around, but it, it doesn't change particularly often. And other insights change really rarely. An underlying customer need about wanting to feel confident that they're not missing important facts about the project. Those insights are well validated, they're solid, they don't change at all or, or very rarely. These different cadences remind me of Stuart Brand's shearing layers in his book, How Buildings Learn, which is a lovely book about architecture. Um, which is in turn based on some 70s work from an architect called Frack Duffy. Um, and if you look at any building, an office block, a house, there's the stuff in the building, the furniture, the decorations, that changes a lot. Um, people get new chairs, change the colour of the walls and so on. And then there's like the physical space that the building has, the rooms. And you'll sometimes add a window or knock down a wall, especially if it's an office space with easily movable um, things. But that happens less often than changing the stuff. Then there's stuff like there's services like plumbing, electricity, and air conditioning. They change less often than the space and even less often than the stuff. Then there's the skin and the underlying structure. And finally, like the site the building sits on, which is obviously changes fairly rarely. Um, all those things are interrelated, but they change at very different paces. And it reminds me, it reminded me of the, the different rates of change in the research. Brand later talked about pace layers in the context of civilizations like fast-paced fashion, which relied on slower-paced commerce, which relied on even slower-paced infrastructure, and so on, until he got right down to kind of the natural world. And as Brand said, each layer is functionally different from the others and operates somewhat independently, but each layer influences and responds to the layers closest to it in a way that makes the whole system reliant. And that reliance was, was kind of what we were after. Um, those different kinds of paced work was something that we'd seen in our, with our incremental persona. So we moved things around. We separated the insights that we'd seen into layers. Insights that changed a lot were pushed up the diagram, and insights that changed rarely were pushed down the diagram. <coughs> And we started calling it base layer mapping for, for the obvious reason. Um, and we also kind of started adding things that weren't directly customer related all the time, product insights, other research insights that we found when we were doing experiments and delivering the product. So it kind of broadened out a little bit from just customer information. So quick review. We started off with a one-off alignment activity that help give people confidence in which research insights were true and which weren't, and understanding where everybody sat along those dimensions. Not necessarily getting agreement, but understanding that there was disagreement. 
then we started adding structure and rules to that initial one-off artifact as people started referring to it more and more during actual product development work and ongoing research work. When we saw that irrelevant information was coming back again and again, despite the fact it wasn't useful for driving the product direction, we pulled it out into a separate area where it could go live and not annoy everybody. And when we saw the different bits of research moving at different paces, we started separating things into layers depending on how often things changed. Which brings us finally back to that nice neat canvas. So basically, we have the confidence and utility of the research insights mapped horizontally. We have how often those insights change mapped vertically. Uh, we define transitional rules for how we decide to move the insights around the map. They're our playbook for how we um, manage insights and the research and the um, experimental practices we, we use to move them around. And that breakdown lets us, lets us do some interesting things when that's all visualized and up on the wall. Um, we know stuff over here has, has weak evidence and we need more research. When everybody shares this perspective, the conversations about whether research is needed becomes much simpler on the team. Um, this is a space where generative user research work by, by product managers and researchers tends to happen. This means developers can just ignore it. Um, sometimes a bunch of the product people can ignore it as well. We know that we have stronger evidence for insights here. We're more likely to experiment and make small bets um, as a space where user research and product and development and design can all get involved. Um, when we shift over to the right, we know that we have much stronger evidence. We can use this information to drive decisions about building features that we can be fairly confident are going to fulfill a customer need. Um, we can be fairly sure that bets we make here are going to pay off. And this space is more own, owned by design and development. At the top, we've got a space where research insights um, are more focused around driving short-term tactical work. We know that the insights at the top are subject to change a lot. So if we're going to make an investment there, we know that it should probably be a short-term rather than a long-term thing until we see how they play out over the long, a longer period of time. Maybe we should just wait and not do anything until it settles down. Um, those are the kinds of decision that that layer helps drive. And as we move down the map, we have more and more confidence that these things are less likely to change on short notice. And stuff down near the bottom is a place where we can make decisions about longer term utility. The bottom, the bottom is a place where we can make larger and larger investments with more confidence. We know the bottom layer isn't going to change very often. We know the history. We know that it's not going to be something that's going to be moving around every other week or month. That's the space where research insights are more focused around driving strategic product direction rather than tactical product direction. What about the flare? Those useful bits of true information that aren't actually useful for driving product decisions. Um, we had that separate category down before, and now it's kind of disappeared. The thing is, if we apply those rules, flare kind of naturally ends up in the bottom left. It doesn't change much, and it's not useful for product decisions. In fact, another way of viewing the pace layer map is by treating it as quadrants. Stuff that migrates to the bottom left are, are things that tend not to change much and things that we're not confident are useful. So by and large, they can be ignored. 
whereas things in the top left are things that are likely to change, so probably need more research. Um, they need a bit more attention to see what's happening and which things are going to be useful. In the top right, we have some confidence that there are actual customer problems that think I, things might change quickly. Um, there might be a, you know, a transient need. So short-term investments, short-term product works, smaller bets are the things we do in that top right quadrant until we can prove their long-term um, utility to our product direction. And eventually, if things end up in, in the, the bottom right, um, that, that's a kind of stable, useful quadrant. We have high confidence in their long-term utility, so they're much more suitable for longer-term investments. We can go build features on that right now. So why do we say map and mapping rather than just the kind of pace layer diagram? Uh, some of you might be familiar with Simon Wardley's work. Um, he created an artifact that was kind of inevitably called a Wardley map, um, and it's a tool for helping people visualize and understand business strategy. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to explain them, um, although they're worth digging into if you're interested in talking about strategy, but that's not what we're doing right now. Um, the interesting thing for me in this context is that Simon had quite a strict definition of what makes a map a useful map. And this is something um, he says about the, the, the maps that he gets shown, as it were. I often visit new companies and they tell me they use maps. They get excited and ask to look. Unfortunately, what they show me are usually box and wire diagrams which latch, lack basic elements of mapping. From a strategic point of view, they're next to useless. Um, basically, what you get on a lot of canvases is just some boxes you put stuff in. Um, and when Simon talks about maps, he's, he's talking about um, something that has all of these aspects. Um, it's context, first of all, it's context specific, like this map of the Battle of um, Thermopylae, um, that one badly presented in the film 300, if you've ever seen that. Um, as well as being context specific, it's visual, so you can see all the things. Um, there are things on the map, it has components like armies and navies. Um, that have a position relative to an anchor, in this case, you know, north, south, east, west. And components move around, so you can, you can, you can kind of try things out and, and see, how, see how they relate to each other. And pace layer maps have all of those properties. It's context-specific. It's about a particular product and service. Um, it's visual. It has components on the map that have a position relative to an anchor, the, the, the confidence and pace dimensions. And the components move around, um, the research insights move around according to our transition rules that we define, the practices and, and actions we need to take to, to move things kind of forward or back or up and down. And once we start seeing it as a map, we could start seeing the connections between um, different things much more easily. Um, a long-term established need to stay current might drive a medium-term goal about staying up to date which might drive us to look at customer needs around a new notification widget or push notifications or Alexa notifications. So people can start seeing connections between different aspects of research and product work all in one place, which started letting everybody research, product design and delivery, start making new connections a little bit more easily and with a little bit more confidence. If we get a new insight or observation, we can start asking questions and drawing tentative connections to existing research. 
Um, when we see a new stable insight, we can start asking what other things might we want to look at that aren't on the board right now. And that's where pace layer mapping is right now. Um, this is where the long messy journey has got us so far. Um, is that the end? Probably not. Um, don't get me wrong. Um, we've been working with teams who are finding this model useful right now and, and helpful right now, but focus still asking interesting questions. I'm sure it will be changed. Indeed, it's already different um, in, in some different teams. Um, I've seen a bunch of kind of problems and questions raised that I don't really have great answers to yet. So I just want to kind of mention a few of them to illustrate things. There's context. Context is a problem that Simon, uh, is a concept that Wardley talks about with his maps. Um, sorry. Um, climate is a concept that Simon talks about with his maps. Um, when there's a natural movement to some of the things on the map, are there patterns that we can see in the way insights move around that can help us predict things? Um, there's the kind of normal migration from the kind of a new insight coming in, moving across the board as we get more evidence and moving down as it stabilizes. We also see things like kind of a paused migration as something comes in and it kind of halts around the middle for a bit of it and sits around. And then sometimes we get a lot, bunch more evidence and it pushes up, up to the, the right. And sometimes it uh, fails and falls back down and, and goes back to the bottom, bottom left. Can we use, can we find more patterns? Can we make predictions from those kind of patterns? Can we um, use them to make useful product direction? Don't know yet. We've not seen enough of them. Sometimes there are gaps. Um, in this space, uh, is this space on a pace layer map a sign that we've exhausted all the insights? Is that a sign that we need more research? Um, is it a problem of overemphasis on delivery? Um, are people worried about adding things to the board? How do we know? Um, don't know. We've seen I've seen all of those things in different places and figuring out ways to um, do things effectively when we see that pattern appear needs a bit more work. Research repositories. Um, pace layer maps have mostly existed on walls or in recent years on, on mirror and uh, mural boards and have been used by individual teams. For companies that also used research repositories, that's meant some duplication and copy and pasting between the repo view of the world and the pace layer map view of the world. How can we make that integration smarter? Does it make sense to have pace layer maps scale across multiple teams? Um, for those who watched Robin Beer's talk at the start of the day, I was nodding along when she was talking about the various research artifacts being insight repositories too. There are all ways to put a lens around some research work that lets folk make certain kinds of decision more easily. How do we start talking about what lens is useful when? How do we make it easier to switch lenses? This seems to be a thing that many research repositories aren't, aren't that good at helping us do yet. And I, and I want to play with that idea more. Context, another thing from, from Simon's list of map attributes. Um, in this case, uh, for a water, it's the Battle of um, Thermopylae. Um, in the context of a pace layer map, it's the product or service we're delivering on. What happens when that context changes? How do we articulate the context of a map so that we can see changes happening? 
for small changes, the map can evolve. For large changes, like the whole business model changing, the map becomes invalid. Um, the problem is that messy middle. Um, that's that's harder. Do we reset everything? Um, do we go through stuff on a case-by-case basis? Something else? Um, don't know. Not seen it happen enough yet. The components themselves. On Simon, um, another of the map attributes on, on Simon's list, uh, you know, in this case, it's, it's the armies and navies and, and the physical locations. On the pace layer map, people throw a lot of different stuff there. And they mostly treat it the same way. That's been fantastic for getting lots of different folk to contribute, but can lead to kind of interesting discussions where we have multiple layers of abstraction that can look, can look the same to somebody coming into the map without a bunch of the context on how it was built up. One card can be a random observation. Another is the output of an ongoing longitudinal survey that's been going for years. Given those same weight on the chart feels wrong and it can be confusion, confusing. How do we fix that? Don't know. Still trying to see the patterns. Information overload. Sometimes the maps get too much stuff on them to make they messy and hard to make decisions from. Um, is that poor control of what goes on the board? Is it poor weeding of things that should be removed? Is it a poor definition of the working context? So people are putting stuff up there that's not relevant. Do we need ways to filter it to make it more useful? Still figuring all that out. Do we need those recurring review practices back that we discarded earlier when we switched to the pace layer mapping? Now, this list of problems isn't an exhaustive list. We've also got questions about how to integrate with some with some of the research ops works that are happening in these plate in these teams, about how to spin up a pace layer map for a product or service that's already in progress, how to frame the outcomes and context better. But I've only so much time to ramble at you. The point is, I don't think this is the end of the long, messy journey. There's a version of this talk at that URL for, for those who want to think about this some more, along with some links to some of the things I've mentioned. If you do go and play with this model, I would really, really love to hear about it, especially if you change it. Um, because like I said at the start, if you're going to take one thing away from this, um, remember the messy journey we took. This didn't come out of nowhere. It came from a lot of experimentation with different clients and product spaces. Um, it's almost certainly not, not finished evolving yet. And that's the lesson I want you to take away. That the research artifacts and practices that you use with your team should be useful. And when they're not, please change them until they are. I hope that made vague sense. Thank you very much for your patience. Thanks so much, Adrian. That was a great way to close out the day. Thank you. Were there any questions? I couldn't see the chat from where I was no, staring at the screen. Um, um, at, at the moment, the, we, we don't have... Oh, Katrina's just asked one, and I think we've got time for that one question. So let me read it out. Has it ever happened that insights inside ignore section get moved out to other sectors? Uh, to other sections. For instance, the future research starts proving the things in there. That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I think um, the answer is yes, but a, a more often a thing that happens more often is that something that starts heading towards the ignore section, as it were, people people go, wait, that 
that seems like it should be useful. Why aren't we doing something with this, as it were? So as, as people see, see something that, that looks like it might be useful disappearing, then you can people can start having the conversation about, wait, is this actually useful? Are we missing an opportunity here? Um, is this something that's going to be useful later? Okay, let's, let's write a reminder to, to go poke at this in like two months' time where we have some, you know, budget to go play with this thing. So, yes, things do move, move in or out, but it's the trajectories, I think, that are, are more interesting and drive action a little bit more than the actual location. It feels like a, a good way of um, at least at approaching that problem of a repository. Um, and it's been mentioned uh, earlier on, this idea of a, like an insights repository that gets built up over time. Um, one of the things that's difficult is to become like a dumping ground rather than a structured collection. Uh, and this feels like it could help with that. Yeah. Um, I think the... Um, I think some of the people I've worked with in repositories, that the thing they're often after is scale. They 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 want um, all the stuff that's coming in from all the places to be in a place. So if it's going to be useful at some point, we've got it there. Um, which is which is a a fine goal. Um, the the pain point I hit more often with the people I work with is what's relevant to the stuff that I'm doing right now. Um, and what's what's something that we thought was true two months ago that turns out not to be true now for whatever reason? Um, and I think okay. those those are the pain points that that pace layer mapping helps with more rather than the um, keeping track of all the things problem. Yeah. Okay. Um, Andrews uh, asked the question: Do the artifacts on the board need to be strictly insights? Or could there be a hypothesis or need-style um, statements? Absolutely. Um, and you also see the, um, and I guess actually this this is a pain point that I didn't talk about. It's like what, what goes what goes on, on the board, as it were. Um, most of the teams that I've worked work with have been very um, laissez-faire about that. Kind of anything goes. It's like kind of, you know, um, Bobbing customer support says we should do this, and uh, you know, at one level and at the other level, you know, we we have an hypothesis that we're going to validate. And again, it's it's drawing the connections between those things, um, and also sometimes migrating the form of something um, as it moves around the board. So something comes in as a kind of Bob thing. Bobbing customer support says that we could do this, and then uh, you know, a little bit later, it's Bob said this, and then we talked to ten customers, and they all said. Oh my god! I have that pain point all the time, and then we have uh, a, a bit later on appointed to a kind of you know oh we tried this um, little experiment to see if people are actually interested in this, and yes, everybody clicked on it. You know, so it it grows over time. Nice, Adrian. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.